Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show I do where I talk about the movies I've seen since the last time I did one of these. I'm David. It's just me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let's do it. Um, since the last time, well, so because, between watching a lot of Kenneth Anger movies, which we discussed <clears throat> on the most recent episode, and then going to TIFF and seeing a bunch of movies there that I will discuss on an upcoming uh, the next episode um there's and also i'm under embargo on one movie so there's like a surprising despite the fact that it's been a month i actually have very few movies uh to talk about but enough that i thought it was worth doing uh a movie journal this week so um let's start with dustin guy difa's the adults uh, i had been a huge fan of Dustin guy difa's last movie uh person to person and so this was like high on my list of anticipated movies and it's quite good um i don't think it's as good as person to person but uh it definitely um benefits from gustin from difa's sort of um uh uh patient open-mindedness uh with with his with his characters weird though they may be may be his non-judgment of them um and from a great cast so uh basically um the adults are three siblings played by michael sarah um who we know is great hannah gross um from mindhunter who's great here and then sophia lillis who's also great in um girdle and hansel and she was in the it uh uh, movie that Andy, uh, what's his name made? Um, what is his name? Muschietti. Muschietti? Anyway. Uh, so they are siblings, uh, both of whose parents have, ha- have, have died. So they're, even though they're still of like sort of relatively on the young side and definitely in some cases on the immature side, um, they are, the adults of the family because there's no adults left uh, uh, uh above them and they uh so the the movie belongs to that sort of a uh, subgenre of like sad uh single man returns to hometown uh because michael sarah his character lives in portland and has come uh home to 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 visit his his sisters or maybe to do something else um you you'll you'll find out um but really this is just a portrait of three siblings who um have some on the one hand they have a bond that uh uh no one else understands and on the other hand they are there are some rifts in their relationship that they don't seem uh, willing to or capable of uh, repairing um, but what really helps the movie along like I said is just these three these three performances are fantastic uh, the the thing that I'm not saying about the movie is that they like from their childhoods they have um, a bunch of characters that they like would play as and in the movie they will often slip in and out of these characters especially as things become uncomfortable or as a way of saying uh things that would be too uncomfortable to say um with a straight face uh 
and uh yeah the actors sell it 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 never becomes cartoonish or annoying it's just uh it's just a good movie uh next up i saw a very perfectly decent by the numbers sort of inspirational sports movie called the hill um which is the true story of a guy named ricky hill who had uh physical disabilities um but was determined to play uh professional baseball and uh spoiler did end up playing minor league professional baseball uh but uh so um colin ford plays ricky hill i don't know really who that is um but uh the main th- the the big draw here i guess is that dennis quaid plays uh his father who's a a preacher and has decided that his son is going to be a preacher too and here's where i wonder like so yeah the movie is just an inspirational like like i said he ends up getting into the thing he overcomes his uh bad spine and plays minor league baseball so you know what happens uh what's really interesting to me is that i'm not sure i I can't tell if this is a quote-unquote faith-based movie or not i haven't looked into the director is not someone who comes from the like faith-based world but the movie definitely like believes in god and definitely has this sort of argument that like someone with a talent and determination is not being like ricky hill is not being selfish but like um embracing their god-given gifts and taking the path that god laid out for them but then also you've got the but the fact that you've got dennis quaid playing a i mean i was gonna say a man of the cloth i don't know i feel like that's more of a catholic thing but a preacher um a a shepherd um uh who is also wrong and his it shows him as having a narrow view narrow interpretation of christianity um and and maybe of god or or maybe the he has the pride of assuming that he um knows what god wants of him and his family um so the movie is very like it's fine and and it's definitely i I, I would it would it would be hilarious for me to call this movie nuanced but based on what tyler has told me about faith-based movies it actually does seem comparatively nuanced so i'm not sure to what extent it actually is a faith-based movie or if people would have if that audience would have trouble with like uh hey but this guy's supposed to be um a man of god but then he's also wrong at the same time i don't know maybe i'm not giving christians enough credit uh next up moving on to a great movie um the movie is so nice i watched it twice actually uh the movie is called fremont and is directed by babak jalali now i did not see this at sundance where it um got great reviews um uh i i, I probably should have it's an absolutely beautiful uh movie but also very funny um fremont is a city in the bay area uh where apparently i've learned this from 
watching the movie, uh, a lot of Afghans have have settled. Uh, and so the main character, her name is, let's start with a D. What the hell is her name? Donya. Um, Donya, played by Anita Walizada, um, in her first acting role, um, she is an Afghan, um, and I believe she was a television news reporter in Afghanistan, obviously. With the Taliban takeover, I don't think there are any women on TV reporting the news anymore. Um, uh, and maybe that's part of the reason she was able to get out on a, on a visa. Um, so she plays a... Uh, uh, but she, the character is uh, was an interpreter for the U.S. Army who got out on a visa in August of 2021. And... Um, uh, the... The movie kind of follows her. She she lives in Fremont. Took a job working at a fortune fortune cookie factory in San Francisco, um, and then also through there's some sort of program for Afghan refugees where she goes to see a therapist played by Greg Turkington from Entertainment um, and other things, um, and he's fantastic. They're both fantastic. Those are the two main people in the movie um and they're both really great uh but the movie like i think uh it feels very like american indie in a way that indie in a way that could be like uh um annoying and quirky because it's like it's black and white it's one three three it's very deadpan but it's uh it's it never feels overly like self-conscious it it feels um very loving of its characters and has multiple sort of uh non-professional actors uh in it um like i said this was anita well he's out his first role um i'm not sure uh if her bosses at the fortune cookie factory don't seem like professional actors but they're very they're good at it um but uh i guess to get into what i found so moving about the movie is she eventually says in in her therapy session she mentions that she didn't like she wasn't dying to come to the u.s she was dying to get out of afghanistan and the u.s was the one who happened to be available to her to offer a visa she says she lists other places like if i could have worked with them and you know these other countries i would have gone i just wanted to get out of uh, afghanistan and so she'd never really thought about what america was so the the danya we meet at the beginning of the movie is kind of just like floating through life because none of what's around her is familiar to her but she also doesn't at the same time she doesn't miss afghanistan um i mean she's very closed off she clearly misses i mean she must miss her family and stuff like that but she's like closed herself off emotionally um and there's a eventually a kind of like zen beauty to the the movie kind of opening up into this like hey just deal with what's in front of you and 
try to make the most of it and that seems so simple but um sometimes the simplest observations um realized through a work of art can uh be overwhelming because they're so true and so uh huge and undeniable uh so fremont absolutely beautiful movie um lost track where was i uh next up uh a movie called before now and then um which is a mm, movie from indonesia uh and well it has a sort of um a uh nonlinear structure but um um it has to do with the uh 1960s i mean i don't know you saw the act of killing obviously there was a lot of um terrible things happening in indonesia around this time um uh but the main character is a woman who basically finds herself in I guess kind of a what's the what's the term people use like a gilded cage she basically like finds herself in a place where she is like safe and more than provided for but it's not where she wants to be but it's the place where she can be not not killed um uh, and then he sort of goes back and forth and uh what I found really interesting about it was less the story and more the tone uh so i'm pulling up the director's name now camilla andini camilla andini um the tone that she creates uh really gets that thing of the like um this is this is this is a beautiful place that she's in but it's unsafe and so there's a lot of like tactility to uh the home and the and the clothes the nice clothes that she wears and the movie is very like beautiful to look at but it also it sometimes i think very quite very much intentionally feels like it's a horror movie or a ghost story there are there's a lot of frightened whispering and there's portent and there's um unease uh and so yeah, tonally, I think the movie is a, a big success. So that's before, now, and then. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What's up now? Okay, now I got a bunch of... uh... Oh, okay. Yeah, next up, I saw a two-hour and 43 documentary called We Kill for Love. This is a documentary that is specifically about the uh subgenre in the boom of direct to video erotic thrillers from like the late 80s to the mid 90s and yes two hours and 43 minutes 
on that very specific subject and i loved it <laughs> it's um it's such a great work of i think film history and criticism um but it's also an exploration of uh societal trends um and societal pathologies and and the 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 way that things from politics to economics uh affect our values but also affect our desires of what we want and and you know how it affects the the market if you will um and uh it's also often very funny the um uh the two hours and 43 minutes surprisingly flies by uh it's full of clips from from these movies it also has an original score by a guy named herman herman Beeftink, uh who was one of the main guys who scored these types of movies at the time so the director of we kill for love uh anthony penta reached out to this guy and asked him to uh or, or you know probably hired him to uh compose an original score for for the the, the movie um and uh uh yeah i really really loved it um so uh let's move on to we got two in a row from patricio guzman because both of his two of his landmark early movies have been restored um because we are at the 2023 is the 50 year i guess anniversary of um the uh you know cia sanctioned uh coup um and the end of salvador allende's uh um brief presidency um and so uh we'll start with 1972 is the first year which is the documentary he made before all of that happened uh, about the first year of allende's presidency um patricio guzman i've seen a number of his films um and i really like him i really also to any chilean listeners we might have i also understand that this is one man's point of view uh i he tends to have politics that are similar to mine but i don't like pretend that all of chile uh agrees with everything that he says but he was very pro allende um uh, which I was just reading that uh, like at the 50 year mark a lot of young Chileans are um, pro Allende which I think I would have been too he um, uh, we see how he uh, uh, nationalized a lot of the industries in Chile that uh, he and obviously a percentage significant percentage of Chilean voters felt were being unfairly pillaged by outside corporations american and european um uh, uh businesses that were uh taking chile's resources and not giving back putting back into the country uh anything on par with what they were taking um and so he nationalizes things and the first the first year just it's um it's a kind of a celebrate it understands there are like uh um uh challenges and detractors but it's a very celebratory documentary which is just like in an extra textual way becomes like tragic because you know how short-lived this all 
is but uh um yeah he's got a a lot of great uh, uh footage and definitely skill as an as an editor uh and that leads us to and that wasn't a joke about the editing but that leads us to the nearly five hour 1975 movie the battle of chile which um uh, documents what happened after that in the lead up to the the coup and the end of the Allende presidency and um what's obviously like he's still the same filmmaker and and so that very sort of urgent controlled chaos like kind of tone of of his movie of the first year continues into the battle of chile but there's more chaos um there are times when the battle of chile is not uh it's it's not a euphemism it's lit, it's a literal like there's actually um fighting uh going on o- over this um but the thing that really stood out to me in watching all like four and a half four hours and 45 minutes whatever it is of um the battle of chile is that the first year has lo- has multiple sections that are just like watching the people watching the people cheer or work or do things the battle of chile whether it's patricia guzman narrating or uh man on the street interviews it is constant talking like there is a constant there are constant voices throughout the 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 movie and and like that urgency um uh obviously he felt very you know he's a very politically active man politically involved brain um he obviously felt there was uh, an urgency to what he was doing uh again that sounds like a joke um uh um because it's five hours long but he also to me like i mean i mentioned that there's a tragedy the first year because it doesn't know the coup is coming there's a tragedy to the battle of chile because it doesn't really understand yet what Augusto Pinochet is going to be and how many people are going to die and disappear um, during his dictatorship Um, and uh, yeah there are definitely some things I think um, the way that Patricio Guzman sees the conservatives in his country is in some ways similar to the ways that I um, see the conservatives in our country, not necessarily morally, but when it comes to actual conservatism of like small government stuff, the way that they tend to like, I feel like they, and many others feel like they, they, they like uh, underfund and attack and tear down uh government programs and then use their subsequent inability to do their jobs these 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 programs to fulfill their tasks as evidence that the government doesn't work and it's like well it it will work and you see definitely you see like um part of the conservatives is a uh, a game plan in the battle of chile is a kind of like self-sabotage of of these nationalized businesses and nationalized industries and stuff uh and then the movie for all of its fire and urgency and immediacy it understandably ends on just the saddest note possible it's just 
it's just a a real bummer <laughs> i mean that sounds like a a joke but um it it really is uh a, a bummer and then um finally last movie uh just last night i watched a documentary called invisible beauty which is about and co-directed by a uh, former model and then modeling m- model agent um beth ann hardison uh it's directed by her and uh frederick chang who made um dior and i and he made halston um um anyway uh so yeah movies about fashion and uh yeah the movie is you know pretty standard bio doc stuff uh but a there's the fact that i mean bethany hardison has lived a fascinating life and has a lot of great stories so it's never like boring uh obviously i find fashion fun and interesting to learn about um one thing okay so yeah it's it's if you're interested in learning about Beth Ann Hardison, this is a movie that will teach you what you want to know, and it's a, an enjoyable watch. Um, the one thing that it got me thinking about in terms of, you know, cinema is that, like, the thing that I, that, like, the Ken Burns thing of making a documentary with like using historical still images but not just showing the still images zooming in on certain parts of them cropping them panning slowly across them that has become so commonplace and just such just a part of the documentary like ingredients um these days that i am pretty sure that if someone just for the first time today went back and watched like ken burns the civil war or whatever it wouldn't seem as interesting or cool as not or novel as it did even to me watching in the late 90s um yeah just a thought i had that like um ken burns kind of like hugely contributed to the documentary form but it was so widely adopted that now it seems anonymous